straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. In today's episode, I have two acts. In the first act, I have a brief chat with my sister, Kelly Mullins, about her acting career, her love of music, and her hope in the resurrection of the dead. In the second act, I go in more detail and more depth of my own views on disability theology, identity politics, and the resurrection of the dead. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. I really appreciate all of the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Kelly and I chatting about everything. Enjoy. All right, I am here with the one and only Kelly Mullins. So Kelly, you were recently in the play Godspell. Uh, tell tell me what characters you played in the in the play Godspell. Uh, the bad guy and um, the pig and the sheep. So the bad guy, which which um, okay, well I guess I should back up so so everybody can follow. So Godspell is a play based on the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. But it's like a bunch of hippies from like the seventies doing it. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and so were you dressed as a hippie for this? Uh, yes. So what, what what were you wearing? Uh, the gospel shirt. Like, explain it to me. Like, what did it look like? It's, um, a tie-dye shirt. Oh, okay, so you were wearing a tie-dye shirt. Yeah. Okay, and so you were the bad guy in one of, one of the characters? The first one. So what was what was the first uh, scene? What, what, what were you doing? Um, I had to sit on a chair, because I was in a court. Oh, okay, so you were, like, condemning Jesus? Yeah. Okay, so you, wait, so you condemned our Lord and Savior? Yes. In real life or just in a play? Oh, no, just in a play. Just in a play. Okay, so you didn't really condemn Jesus? No. No, okay. That's that's probably for the best. <laughs> okay, and so then you played a pig in... Well, first the sheep and then the pig. Oh, and the, okay, so f- tell me about the sheep. What was what, what story were you the sheep in? Well, I can't remember that part, but um, I just love being in it. You love being in it? <laughs> yeah. Now, you were the pig in the story of the prodigal son yes. for the play. Yes. Okay, so what? now what did you do as a pig? Well, I, I just said oink, oink, buster. Oh, to the prodigal son? Yeah. Yeah. Because he was going to try to eat me. <laughs> he was going to... Oh, he was going oh, to... Okay, so he's trying to eat you. Yeah. And you tell him to... Oink, oink, buster. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And Now, you've, you've been in a bunch of plays, right? Yes. Okay, what are some other plays you've been in? Uh, Shrek, Cinderella, Aladdin, Peter Pan, Willy Wonka. So you think, I think that's that's all of them, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, okay, so that's, I mean, that's a lot of plays you've been in. Yes. So, okay, who are you in Cinderella? I don't remember. The evil stepsister, Drusilla. Okay, okay. So, when you're in these plays, remind me, so, so most of the cast has special needs, right? Yes. Right. Okay. And so, um, and so, this is a production that our our cousin Julie does each yes. year. Yeah. So you've been doing this for several years now. So you're yes. a very seasoned actress. Yes. Mm-hmm. So is the next stop Broadway? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do on Broadway? Being a famous actress. You just want to be a famous actress. Yeah. You just want okay. So just can't stop, won't stop. Gonna be famous all the time. Yes. <laughs> okay. So so Miss Famous Actress, tell me what is your favorite band? 
Jonas Brothers. The Jonas Brothers. What happened to the Ramones? You used to be like a huge Ramones fan. Well, actually, I'm just, I'm just, I just like the Jonas Brothers. But, okay, so you just gave up on the Jonas, so like, okay, so it's only Jonas Brothers. You just give up on all the other bands you used to like. Well, I still like them, but I, I still like the Jonas Brothers. Well, yeah, I know you like the Jonas Brothers. What, what happened to like, you know, you used to love Under Oath and Zayo. What happened to that? Well, I still do. Okay, so you still like heavy metal every once in a while. Yes. Okay, well, which, which is your favorite heavy metal band? Zayo and Under Oath. Do you remember, did I take you to see, I don't think I took you to see Zayo, but I took you to see Under Oath. Okay, yeah, that was Zayo. It was Zayo. Oh, that's, oh, yes, we did see Zayo at the skate park. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think I took you to see Under Oath at, um, I think it was at the Emerson. Actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did I ever tell you that, that Emma hung out with the drummer from the Ramones? Oh, actually, no. No, yeah, so she got to see, um, well, it was the Ramones were coming through Italy, but the only person alive left from the Ramones was the drummer, uh, so she got to see them when she was, I think she was like a teenager, and then she got to hang out with the drummer for a while. And I, th- I think she said she lost her boot in the mosh pit uh, somehow. <laughs> so let's talk about theology for a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so what is your favorite doctrine in Christianity? Uh, anything really like my brother. Oh, your favorite theologian is your brother? Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite topic in theology? Uh, me. Me? Yourself? Is your <laughs> Actually, yes. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> well <laughs> you are such a vain child. <laughs> but I'm glad your favorite theologian is me, because that, you know... There's nobody else who's better than me, so that's that makes sense. That'd be Emma. Oh, oh Emma. Oh, so Emma's now the better theologian than me. Yeah, but she's a biologist. She doesn't even do theology. Yeah. Ah, what do you? You don't care about contradictions. Okay, so tell me about the <laughs> resurrection. It's because um, it's my grandpa Ford. He died before I was born, and because I miss him, and I still love him, but I never met him because I wanted to meet him. He. He imagined me by saying to mom, I can only imagine you holding a hand with a little girl with red hair and red freckles. Oh, okay. So, okay. So let me explain for the audience what you're talking about. So his name is George Ray Ford. Yeah. So our grandfather, uh, right before he died, he said to our mother that he could just imagine her holding a little girl with red hair. And that was... Um, and red freckles. And red freckles. freckles. I forgot about the freckles. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and and so, yeah. And so, and you weren't born yet. Um, yeah. And then when you were born, you had red hair and freckles. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, for you, the reason you... The, the resurrection is what is your favorite, like, doctrine is because you're looking forward to being able to meet Grandpa. Yes. Now, who else do you want to meet at the resurrection? Anton Yelchin. Anton Okay. So, tell, tell, tell everybody who that is. He's from Star Trek, because I wanted him to be my, I go check out for the movie. Oh, right. For, for Star Trek. Oh, for the Star Trek movie that you're writing. Yeah. Yeah, you want him to be, you want, well, you okay, so you want, when he was resurrected, you want him to be in the movie that you're writing. He, I, I wanted him to be my, my Uncle Chekhov. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the Chris Pine version. To come back and be Captain Kirk? Actually, Chekhov. Oh, you want Chris Pine to be Chekhov? No, Anton. Oh, you want Anton? Oh, sorry. Okay, and then you want Chris Pine. They're to be both going to be my uncles, and all of them be my aunts and uncles, and one of my favorite aunt, ooh, her, should be my favorite aunt. Mm-hmm. 
and I'll be kidnapped in it too. Okay, so there's, there's <laughs> a lot of drama in this uh, in this Star Star War, uh, Star Trek uh, movie that you're writing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so come Resurrection Day, everybody, get ready for Star Trek with Kelly Mullins, writing it, directing it, acting in it, starring Kelly Pike. Kelly Pike. Okay, so okay, because you're. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about so it's okay. So you really like Star Trek, but you also really like Harry Potter. Yes. Right. So who is your favorite character in Harry Potter? James and Oliver that played the twins. Which twins? George and Fred. George and Fred. Oh, the Weasley. Yeah, the we, the Weasleys are my favorite. Why are the Weasleys your favorite? Just is because like in most people it's gonna be like Hermione or it's gonna be Harry like but like why like why the Weasleys just the Weasleys just the okay just like the Weasleys yes fair enough fair enough <laughs> do you remember when when you came to Edinburgh and I took you to the cafe where JK Rowling wrote some of the books the Harry Potter books that was JK yeah JK do you remember yes but do you remember when I took you there to that cafe yes yes did you like that cafe yes mm-hmm fair enough okay so so we talked about the resurrection we've talked about Harry Potter now, you told me the other day, you want me to write another book. Yes. What book do you want me to write? About me. About you. So yeah. what, like, about, like, Down Syndrome? Yes. Okay, so what do you want me to write about Down Syndrome? I got a sister with Down Syndrome that's, that loves the Weasleys and the Jonas Brothers. So, <laughs> so okay, this, I thought you wanted me to write, a, like, a theology book. And that, too. Well, and that, too. Okay, so... So I have to do a theology book about Down syndrome, which is fine because I've written on that before. But I also have to incorporate Harry Potter and the Weasleys and the Weasleys into. I don't know how to do a theology of Harry Potter though. Just the Weasleys. Just the okay. Well, okay. So I can just forget Harry Potter. Just just the Weasleys. Yes. That's okay. So that that'll be the next book I work on is about Down syndrome, Kelly, and the Weasleys, and the Jonas the Jonas Brothers. Yes. Why the, I don't I'm not gonna write about the Jonas Brothers. I mean the the uh, my favorite one about oh, about how they're your. This sounds like you want me to write a biography of you instead of a theology book. Yes, that's what. Okay, <laughs> I'm glad you're honest about it. That's that's what you want. <laughs> okay, tell me who your favorite actor is. Tom Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, so Benedict Cum- uh, Bumberbee. Cumberbatch. Benedict uh, Bumbersnatch? What? What's his name? Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Okay. What happened to Alan Rickman? Like, I thought he used to be a... And I love Alan Rickman, too. Okay. So he's still in the, he's still in the mix, but not as much as Tom Hiddleston and, and, and Benedict. Well, I still love the three of them. The three of them. Okay. Okay. So those are, those are your favorite actors? Yes. Okay. Let's have a more serious conversation. Is that okay? If we can go a little bit more, a little bit more serious, a little bit more deep? Yeah. Okay. So, so Kelly, why are you so smelly? I, I'm not... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm sitting here, and I just keep thinking Kelly is smelly. No, I'm not. I took a bath last night, so thank you very much. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> tell my nose, because... Okay, so let's talk about you're an artist. So so you were in an art competition a few different times. How many times have you won an art competition? It was in elementary school, and um, the first one I did is up on my um, bed, mm-hmm. like... And the other one too. I did that one. Okay. And the one over here. Oh, for, and the one was, behind. It was for grandma. Okay, so these were for the 
Indianapolis Symphony in Color competition. Yes. So this is a statewide competition that all the elementary students do each year. The and first one was um, in the, the, the art museum. Mm-hmm. And the second one was in a restaurant. Right. So that first one, you, you actually were in the first place category with all the other people. Yes. So your painting was in the Indianapolis Museum of Art yes. uh, museum itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, uh, the second time was like in the second place category and so it was in this like actually that was the restaurant it was in the restaurant next to the the museum okay let me see if i can try to describe these for people so it looks kind of like um some sort of like postmodern abstract kind of stuff is what you're doing here yes do you think that's an accurate portrayal of of, of your your artistic work actually yes okay okay so my sister the postmodern great fantastic (laughs) okay so now you have met some different celebrities. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which which celebrities have you met? Uh, Carrie Underwood. Okay, so you met Carrie Underwood. Tell me a bit about that. What was that like? Uh, it was fun. It was for the Down syndrome thing, and um, I also got an autograph and a picture of her with me. Okay, so there was oh, so it was a, it was you and some other people with Down syndrome that got to meet her. Yes, and Marcy too. Oh, your friend Marcy. And Marcy had a painting of her and gave it to her. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay, so yeah, Marcy had made a painting of Carrie Underwood, yeah. right? And she gave it to Carrie. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I forgot about that. And her pants had holes in it too. Oh, Carrie Underwood's uh, jeans had like like very fashionable holes in them? Yes. That's cool, that's cool. Now, what, what did she have with her? Um... I, I didn't see it. No, didn't didn't she have like a, a a pet with her? Oh, that was a pig. She had a pig, and named it Pepper. So she has a a pig named Pepper. Yeah, yeah, just like we had a dog named that too. Oh yeah, our parents did have a dog named Pepper. Yeah. So so did you get a you got a picture with with her and then you got a picture? Did you get a picture with a pig? I can't remember. Oh, that was mom. Oh, mom got a picture with a pig. So you yeah. got a, so wait so you got a picture with Carrie Underwood and then mom just got a picture with a pig. Yeah. <laughs> okay so you're okay now have you what was the other celebrity you met I th- oh uh william shatner okay so you met william shatner yeah i see okay so i remember i think i was working at cambridge at the time and i think i remember just opening up my phone and just then mom had sent me a picture of you sitting next to william shatner what was what was what was, what was, was standing you were standing okay so you're standing next to what was he that was like? when i was um, sitting he was sitting. Okay. So, what was William Shatner like? Uh, um, it, it it was fine, and um, he it, I told him about a horse and some donkeys, and he said he has some too. Oh, okay. So he's a horse guy as well. He likes horses. Yeah, he has some too. Okay. Tell everybody what's the name of your the horse you have right now. Lance Bass from Insync. So you named your horse Lance Bass from Insync. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So. Now you do horseback riding, but you do other things too. So you're in Special Olympics, is that right? Yes. Okay. So what are, what are some of the sports you do in Special Olympics? Swimming, bikes, and bowling, and golf. Okay, so you really you do a lot. Yes. Which one's your favorite? Uh, the bike. The bike. Okay. Have you won any bike races? Well, actually, yes. What? How many? Okay. So we're sitting in your room right now, and I, we're just surrounded by all these these medals and. And ribbons and stuff like how, and trophies and, and a lot of trophies. Yeah. Uh, so, how many of you won for for bike? Do you have any idea? Uh, I I don't know. <laughs> you, 
you just show up you just win some 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 trophies and, and go home because you're a rock star yes yeah <laughs> fair enough is there anything else you want to say to everybody burning up for you baby <laughs> what? Jonas Brothers <sighs> okay so all the people who listen to the show who are I guess Jonas Brothers fans I'm assuming they'll get that reference yes okay well thank you for using some cultural references that I've never once used on this show so that that'll that'll help Two, disability theology, identity politics, and the resurrection. All right, sorry, Kelly, I'm, I'm not going to be playing the Jonas Brothers on this show. I have standards. Anyway, I want to start by talking about how I got interested in disability theology and then define what disability theology is. So my sister Kelly has Down syndrome. And my family, we've been active in Special Olympics for most of my life. And I've been a part of different communities for people with special needs. So I've just grown up with a personal familiarity with issues surrounding disability. But I didn't become aware of disability theology until around 2008. So during my master's, I took an independent course on cultural hermeneutics, and I did a bunch of research on issues related to gender, sexuality, and and so on. As I was designing my research for the semester, I came across Amos Young's book, Theology and Down Syndrome. So I decided to look into this issue, and I discovered the world of disability theology. So what is disability theology? Defining disability theology, it it comes with various problems. So in my first paper on the topic, I define disability theology as a project in postmodernism. It is a postmodern project in the sense that all voices allegedly have an equal say on all matters. It's probably better to say that disability theology, as commonly practiced, is a kind of critical theory approach to theology. In more popular jargon, you might just call it identity politics applied to theology. Here's the idea. You take an oppressed perspective, any oppressed perspective you like, uh, and you look at the theological doctrines that lead to their oppression. Then you use that oppressed perspective to criticize the theology that led to the oppression in the first place. You also use the oppressed perspective to rearticulate a better understanding of theological doctrines. So in the case of disability theology, you are considering the perspective of disabled people. You use the disabled perspective to criticize past theology and rearticulate a better theology. At least that's the general idea. The problem with this, however, is that this can quickly become a form of colonialism, or what I prefer to call it, identity hijacking. The way that disability theology is sometimes practiced, it selects certain disabled voices to be representative of the disabled perspective. But here's the thing, there is no such thing as the disabled perspective. People with disabilities are all unique and have a vast range of views and experiences on many different issues. So all of this talk about the disabled perspective in disability theology, it can actually be quite problematic because it can ignore the voices of disabled people and create polarization within different communities. It can even lead to disabled people being told that they don't have the disabled perspective because they disagree with whatever is declared as the disabled perspective. And that, that is very harmful. In fact, this is one reason why I think all forms of identity politics are intrinsically evil. 
identity politics, it hijacks people's narrative identities for the sake of grabbing power. And a great amount of harm is caused in the process. What I think is needed is for disability theology to be decolonized by actually allowing many different voices to count as disabled perspectives. We need to cast off the false god of the disabled perspective within disability theology because there is no such thing as the disabled perspective. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. The, the same thing has happened within liberation theology and feminist theology. In previous generations, theologians would talk about the liberation perspective and the feminist perspective. But later generations came along and said, well, hang on a second, That's, that doesn't look like my perspective at all. Let me give you some examples of this. So Marcella Althus Reed, she was born in Argentina. She grew up around the founders of the liberation theology movement. She said she wanted to study theology. And you know what they told her? They told her that true liberation women do not study theology. You know what she did? She went and studied theology anyway. And then she spent most of her career arguing that liberation theology has many perspectives and not just one. So she ended up just giving a full critique of liberation theology. And along the way, she made similar arguments in feminist and queer theology, claiming that there are many perspectives to consider. Well, my hope is that disability theology can do the same thing as the discipline grows. Need to start by bringing in more disabled perspectives instead of talking about the disabled perspective. But at the moment, I do not have high hopes for this, because much of disability theology is dominated by so-called activist voices. So my fear is that the narrative identities of many disabled people will continue to be hijacked by those who yell the loudest. I'm going to come back to this theme of identity hijacking several times throughout this episode. But first, what I need to talk about is the difficulty of defining a disability. Now, defining a disability, it is a surprisingly difficult thing to do. Elizabeth Barnes, she's an analytic philosopher, and she has this really interesting book called The Minority Body. A major part of the book is simply trying to define what a disability is. Uh, let me give you some examples of the sort of definitions that she considers and then her definition and where she arrives at in the end. So first, you have something called a naturalistic definition of a disability. So these try to define disability in terms of having or lacking some particular physical feature that prevents a person from functioning normally. So for example, one of my friend's dad, uh, he was a lumberjack. He got in an accident at work and he became paralyzed from the waist down. Now this guy would say that he is disabled because he can no longer walk like he used to. Now Barnes, what she does is she points out different problems with this definition. The main complaint is that it is difficult to specify what counts as normal functions for humans. And she gives lots of interesting examples. Here, here's one. So consider someone who is short, but not so short that they are diagnosed with dwarfism. A person like this, well, they struggle to do lots of things that most people can. So for example, if you're on an airplane, someone who's short, they're going to struggle to just put their luggage uh, up above uh, on the airplane without assistance. Like, do you really want to say that this person is disabled just because they're a little bit short? So, so what Barnes does then is she moves into a second kind of definition. These are called social constructionist approaches. The idea here is that disability is primarily a socially constructed thing. So being disabled is a matter of how society treats you. So a person is, dis is disabled if society sees this person as having certain bodily features and then society treats this person as having some kind of subordinate status. You are not disabled, or you are no longer disabled, if society does not treat you negatively for having that bodily feature. Now, there are several problems with this social constructionist definition. To start, 
the idea that disability is primarily socially constructed, well, that's going to be met with some very incredulous stares. I mean, think of my friend's dad who was paralyzed. He's going to have some incredibly strong words for you if you tell him that his disability is just socially constructed and that his disability would just somehow go away if society started treating him differently. Now, Elizabeth Barnes, she points out some other problems as well. She points, that, she points out that this definition, it cannot handle people who have so-called invisible disabilities. So these are disabilities like chronic fatigue or chronic pain. They are invisible in the sense that society cannot easily see that you have this disability. So my mom told me a, a, a great story, well, not a great story, but a great example of this. It was a story about a time when she was at Disney World. So there's this family at Disney World, and their daughter had chronic fatigue. So she, she has chronic fatigue, but she can walk short distances. So this family is walking through the fast line at the, Disney, at the rides at Disney World. And since the girl did not have to stand forever in line, she was able to handle like short walks to the ride. So she's not in a wheelchair or anything. She's just standing like normal. But people in the long line, they're saying the worst things to her, like just, and just shouting all sorts of horrible things at her family because they didn't see this girl as disabled. They thought the family was just scamming the disability line. And so this socially constructed definition of disability, it cannot handle cases of invis invisible disabilities like this. So what Barnes suggests, and I think rightly so, is that something's wrong with this definition. So then Barnes, what she does is she comes to her own definition. It's a definition she thinks that captures the best parts of each of the previous definitions. She says that she wants to develop an account on which a disability just is whatever the disability rights movement is promoting justice for. You are disabled if you have some particular physical feature, and members of the disability rights movement judge that this particular physical feature is something worth promoting justice for. Now look, there's a lot more nuance going on in Barnes' account of disability. I'm just giving you the basic story. If you want all of the nice details and the nuance, you need to check out her book, The Minority Body. Now, let me voice my own problems with Barnes's definition. So my problem with this definition is that it gives too much epistemic authority to the disability rights movement. It makes disability far too political than I think it should be. You have to be in solidarity with these movements in order to be considered disabled. And it leaves open the very real possibility that someone with, say, like deafness, they can be wrong about what it's like to be deaf. If you disagree with the movement, then, well, you're out. And I know some of these disability rights movements. Some of, the, some of them are doing things that I think are really great, and all I have to say is amen. Others, they're making claims that I completely disagree with. I just do not think that what a disability is has anything to do with being in solidarity with a political movement. I strongly believe that this kind of mentality is what leads to identity hijacking. This kind of mentality is what leads to someone like Joe Biden saying that if you don't vote for him, then you're not really black. Like, I've seen the same kind of mentality in disability communities, where if you start to, say, you know, consider getting a cochlear implant, then you're not really deaf. Now, again, I do not believe that we should define what a disability is in terms of being in solidarity with a very loud political movement. All that to say, these are some of the difficulties surrounding just defining what a disability is. And, and if you're trying to jump into the disability literature, it's, it's going to be very difficult for you because you're going to be reading disability theologians who are working from a social construction definition. And the average reader, you're probably going to be thinking in terms of a naturalistic definition. So if you're trying to read anything in the disability literature, you need to be aware of these different definitions, because oftentimes they do not state what their definitions are. They're just assuming them. 
Okay, that's enough about definitions. Let's chat about disability and the resurrection. So many disability theologians make a remarkable claim. So people like Amos Young, they say that individuals with disabilities will retain their disabilities in heaven. Their, their resurrected bodies will be disabled bodies. This is a very common claim among disability theologians. So I want to look at some common reasons given to justify this position. There are several kinds of reasons one might appeal to in order to support this claim. The first one is that some disability theologians, they're working with a social construction account of disability. So they think that the only thing that needs to change in heaven is the way we treat people with different physical features. Now recall that on a social constructionist definition of disability, being disabled is just all about how society treats you. Let me give you another reason for this disabled resurrection view. A lot of times there's this assumption that there's this thing called the disabled perspective. And the disabled perspective has a great deal of authority on what our resurrected bodies will be like. There's a passage in Amos Young's book where he's quoting different disabled people and what they think about heaven. Now, some of the people that Young quotes say that they will have resurrected bodies with their disabilities intact forever. And what Young and what so many other people do is they treat that as the disabled perspective. Now, I've already said before that I do not like this mentality of the disabled perspective because I think it leads to identity hijacking. I believe that it leads to diminishing and at times ridiculing the other disabled voices. Let me give you an example of this. So in Yang's book, he also quotes some people with disabilities who say that they will not be disabled in heaven. And after he quotes these people, Yang says this. This is a direct quote from page 244 of his book. He says, to be sure, disability advocates may say that these are socially conditioned responses of the psychologically and religiously immature. So, in other words, these other disabled people, they're not following the disabled perspective, so their opinion does not matter. Because what really matters is what the approved disabled perspective says, and the approved disabled perspective says that you will be physically and psychologically impaired for all of eternity. I'm going to return to this again and explain why I believe that this form of identity hijacking is dangerous. But before that, I want to list some other reasons people give for why the disabled will be disabled forever in heaven. So another common reason has to do with recognition or some kind of continuity between earth and resurrection. The arguments here are very fuzzy. So some disability theologians, they'll argue like this. This is an example from uh, Francis Young. So she says things like, uh, if my son is not disabled in heaven, then I will not be able to recognize him and the loving relationship that we have developed on earth will be lost forever. So the idea is that God has to keep the son disabled in order for the mother and the son to continue to have a loving relationship. And I guess what that would mean is that my sister has to have Down syndrome in heaven, otherwise I won't be able to say that God has resurrected my sister. Now I want to mention one final reason that I think plays a large role in justifying this position about disabilities in heaven. Stanley Hauerwas and Amos Young, they have this claim that to eliminate the disability is to eliminate the person. That's a really strong claim. You might have missed it, so let me repeat it. To eliminate the disability is to eliminate the person. So Young appeals to this dictum in several writings. He also talks about how disabilities are, quote, identity conferring. The idea seems to be that certain kinds of disabilities are so deeply ingrained in your narrative identity that you simply cannot exist without them. So Down syndrome, being quadriplegic, even having Alzheimer's, 
These are all given as examples of deeply identity-conferring disabilities that a person cannot exist without in heaven. So your grandfather with Alzheimer's who just can't remember who you are anymore? Well, he will never remember who you are in heaven because his Alzheimer's is so deeply ingrained in his personal identity. Okay, sorry, sorry, I went really cynical there. My cynicism is not an argument against the view, so let me give you some arguments against this claim that the disabled individuals will be disabled forever in heaven. So let's go in order and take each of these arguments one by one. So the first argument says that the only thing that needs to change in heaven is how the rest of humanity treats a person with certain physical features. Well, I think it's true that the rest of humanity needs to treat these people with love and dignity. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind about that. But I think it is implausible that this is the extent of God's healing in heaven. So consider my friend's dad again, the one who used to be a lumberjack. He's paralyzed from the waist down. I mean, he became an atheist after his accident. Imagine you go up to him and tell him that, you know, when he gets to heaven, God's going to say, hey, you can come on in, but you're going to be paralyzed for all of eternity. I mean, how, how do you think this guy is going to respond to a suggestion like this? I mean, he's going to have some incredibly strong words for you, and I think you deserve every terrible thing he says to you. When I think about all of the different people I know who say that they are looking forward to being healed of their disabilities in heaven, and then I look at this kind of view which says that they only need to be treated differently, sometimes I get the feeling that this is just spitting in their face. I find it to be very degrading to the actual desires for heavenly healing that I see in so many people with disabilities. What this reveals is a disconnect between the so-called disabled perspective in academic contexts and the actual voices of disabled people. When I first published my paper on disability and the resurrection, I received all manner of responses. I was immediately accused of being an ableist in print. I've been called an ableist in multiple publications. And I wouldn't be surprised if various Americans refer to me as a toxic ableist, because Americans love to overuse the word toxic right now. Here's the irony. What academics call toxic ableism, my local Special Olympics community called good common sense based on the ministry of Jesus. The Special Olympics community, it's a very tight community. My short little paper on disability and the resurrection was quickly passed around our community and at my sister's Bible study for people with special needs. Everyone in this community have been, well, they've been very highly supportive of my paper. So many people have told me that they just want to say thank you for writing this paper. They would say things to me like, these people in their ivory towers, they are taking away our hope. So what, here's what you have going on here. You have these academics allegedly representing the so-called disabled perspective, telling me that I'm some raging ableist. And then I have actual disabled people telling me, thank you for standing up for me. You're probably starting to see why I think identity politics is intrinsically evil and why I think identity politics should not have a place in disability theology. This brings me to the second argument I mentioned in favor of resurrected disabilities. That second argument says that people will be resurrected with disabilities because the disabled perspective says so. And if you disagree with the disabled perspective, then you are again, quote, psychologically and religiously immature. My problem with this is that this just looks like a form of colonialism. It, it just is identity hijacking. It looks like certain people have come along and declared, this is the disabled perspective. If you don't agree with it, you are immature. You're not really disabled. You don't understand what it's like to be disabled. That, that is demeaning to people who are disabled. And it's demeaning to people who look forward to being healed in heaven. Here's an example. 
There is a lifelong friend of the family who helped raise me and my sister. I learned most of my toxic ableism from this woman. Her name is Sylvia. Sylvia has terrible arthritis in her hands and joints. When I was a kid, she got all of her bones in her hands replaced with plastic bones. And on days when she was struggling to walk, she would say to me, I can't wait for Jesus to give me a new body. Ooh, such toxic ableism from this woman. <laughs> now this woman, she's well-educated. She taught me many great things about the Bible, and she taught me many great things about theology. I guess you could say that Sylvia doesn't understand the disabled perspective, and you could say that Sylvia's views are psychologically and religiously immature, and you could say that, but I will personally have very strong words to say to you in response, and I think that you will deserve all of the terrible things that I say to you. I think this view is deeply patronizing to Sylvia and anyone else like her. This argument should not be taken seriously within disability theology, and yet it is one of the most prominent forms of the argument that I encounter within the disability theology literature. This really should lead one to doubt that there is such a thing as the disabled perspective. Let's look at the third argument for disabled resurrection. This argument says that if my disabled loved ones are not disabled in heaven, then I cannot recognize them, or somehow my loving relationship with them is diminished or it's just lost. I've seen this view in print, and I have even been at conferences and heard disability theologians run these kind of arguments. I do not find them persuasive in the slightest. This is the one that my family and I have discussed probably the most. My parents and I, well, we find this view very selfish. We find this to be a very selfish reason. They think that it is selfish to demand that their daughter be a particular way for all of eternity just so that they can recognize her. None of us can really understand how our loving relationship with Kelly would be negatively affected if God resurrected her without her disabilities. Also, I just think it's really weird that God's power to heal is somehow dependent on my ability to recognize someone in heaven. This is to confuse a metaphysical issue with an, with an epistemic issue. A person's numerical identity over time is not dependent on my ability to recognize their numerical identity. I mean, that's just a weird, weird view. So to show how weird this is, consider this. So my mom taught elementary school for many years. At different points, she'll have adults come up to her and, sh and they'll say, Mrs. Mullins, do you recognize me? And there's some times where my mom, she can recognize them. And then other times she cannot because you know she's not seen them since they were little kids. So take this and apply it to heaven. Should God ensure that these people be resurrected at the age of eight years old? you know, so that my mom can recognize them in heaven? I'm sorry, but that's nuts. That's just nuts. Because here's why. Whose recognition matters more? Say I have those same students in university. Should God make those students eight years old so that my mom can recognize them? Or should God make them look like they're in their 20s so that I can recognize them? I mean, the, the absurdities, they just keep adding up and up and up when you really reflect on this argument. So now consider the final argument for a disabled afterlife. That slogan, to eliminate the disability, is to eliminate the person. This is an incredibly strong statement. All you have to do to show that it is false is just offer a single counterexample where a disability is eliminated and the person continues to exist. And you don't have to look too hard for counterexamples because there are so many in the news. There's so many constantly uh, in the news as medical science advances. And then also, if you've read this thing called the Gospels, you're going to see a lot of counterexamples there. Jesus is eliminating disabilities left and right in the Gospels. I think it is implausible that Jesus is eliminating people left and right in the Gospels.
I mean, I mean, just think of it. Jesus walks up to a man who was born lame, and Jesus says, hey, I want to make you walk, but I can't do that without eliminating you from existence. You want to come and follow me? What is going on here is that the argument is confusing narrative identity with numerical identity. It is confusing my contingent sense of self. It's confusing the story that I tell about myself, with, like about who I think I am. It is confusing that with my actual essence that persists through time. And I see no reason for thinking that my disabilities, my own personal disabilities, I see no reason for thinking that they are part of my individual essence that persists over time and from death to resurrection. Now, there are newer and more sophisticated arguments being developed in favor of a disabled resurrection. These newer arguments, they do not rely on the faulty reasoning that I've just critiqued. But my worry is that they are conflicting with the biblical teaching. And in fact, I've noticed a severe lack of engagement from analytic theologians with my arguments from Scripture. In fact, one recent analytic paper on disability and the resurrection just completely ignores my argument from the healing ministry of Jesus. Actually, the paper just ignores me entirely because maybe, I don't know, maybe because I'm a toxic ableist or something like that whatever the Americans are saying these days. You know, you don't, you don't want to let biblical facts get in the way of a good narrative. I think the clear teaching of Scripture is that God is going to eliminate all disabilities in the resurrection. So I think that a Christian theology of disability really needs to start with the healing ministry of Jesus for its understanding of God's plan for the resurrection. And then finally, a good Christian theology of disability, it really needs to account for the actual plurality of disabled voices and stop calling everyone they disagree with an ableist. I mean, is that too much to ask? Like a bit of nuance and charity when it comes to a topic so incredibly important as disability and our hope for the afterlife. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology. 